glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. First John chapter 3, beginning verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Now, I believe verse 3 is probably the key verse to these 10 verses. I believe... Uh, We've looked at, and I'll say this, we'll keep reading in a moment. As we look at chapter 3, we're focusing on the constraint of our fellowship with the Lord. The emphasis throughout the book thus far has been the fellowship we have with God. The type of fellowship we have is that once we've been saved, we are now in His family. We are the sons of God. He brings that up in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, he says, speaking of the hope we have of being like the Lord Jesus Christ one day in a glorified state... Every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. I see two, a twofold constraint. When we are in fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, we are constrained, and we'll use the word, first of all, to chastity or purity. Secondly, to charity. Those two are inseparable. Holiness and charity are inseparable. I said that last week. There are many today that say because we love people, we need to lay aside holiness. That's the opposite is true. The fact is, if we love people, we will do what is right. Sin always damages people. And so righteousness and holiness toward God is the most loving thing you can do toward another person. If you love someone, we need to do what's right. And I I see that theme because he'll transition from purity in verses 1 through 9. And verse 10 is a transition point where he begins to talk about charity and loving our brethren, loving God, and so forth. So anyway, verse 3 again, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. Again, a key thought. Remember chapter 2, he said in verse 26, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. So he's trying to expose here people that were uh, trying to pass a lie off on them about this matter of purity. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother." Uh, if you read First John, he never deals in the abstract. It's either this or this. It's black or white. It's right or wrong. None of us could deny sin is of the devil. Righteousness is of God. So when we sin, it's not of God. I believe that if you want to bring something home from this text, we need to understand first and foremost, you cannot be sinning and in fellowship with God 
at the same moment. It is impossible. Just like you cannot be in dark and light at the same time. Why is that needful to be said? Because there are those who are committing their lives to sin. He uses the word committed sin. You might think of it this way. I'm not retranslating the Bible. They have committed their lives to sin and yet say, I'm committed to God. No, you're not. You cannot be committed to sin and committed to God at the same time because God has no sin in him. And that's really the point he's making. He's getting some things clear in our minds so people who want to sin themselves and be used to the devil to get us into sin, I believe this, there's plenty of Balaams today who want to wreck the people of God by seducing them into okaying sin so it brings God's chastisement in our life, doubt in our hearts and minds. John is endeavoring to help them understand. You've got some people among you that are trying to deceive you about the matter of sin. There were those, as I understand, in Gnosticism who not only said sin was okay, but said because the flesh is corrupt anyway, more sin is better. What a, what a crazy thing. Nonetheless, I see people today, they must believe that, right? And so then, here I want to focus on just a few things. Before we get into the, the outline of the text tonight, turn, if you would, to a few, a few texts of Scripture as I believe we can understand what John, what, deceit, what deception he's trying to deal with. When he says in verse 7, little children, let no man deceive you, well, what, was, what were folks trying to deceive them about? The same things that those who Peter was caring for, he had to tell them not to be deceived about. The same thing that Paul uh, and those he was caring for, he told them not to be deceived about. And the same thing we need not be deceived about today. So let's start back here in Romans chapter 6. You know these verses uh, only too well. Romans chapter 6. We'll only read the first two verses just to... Uh, expose what concept was already being put forward. In Romans 6, it would seem that the Apostle Paul had been accused of preaching a message that allowed us or encouraged us to sin more so that the grace of God could abound. Well, we're saved by grace, so the more you sin, the more of God's grace, right? And so, of course, the Apostle Paul deals with the fact that's not what was being preached in the gospel. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It's the same concept John's going to deal with in chapter 3, that now that we're saved, we are not giving license to sin or given license to sin but liberation from sin. Now, if you would, go over to Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul dealing with the Galatians. There were Judaizers coming in among the Galatians, trying to drag them back under the law, if you would, under the system of the law. Galatians 5 verse 3, the Apostle Paul says this. He addresses the same potential error in Galatians 5.13. He says, For brethren... Ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now, if you would, let's roll forward to Ephesians chapter 5. And more specific here is, is this concept dealt with that now that you're saved, uh, it's, you're saved by grace, you're forgiven, you're securing Christ then you can uh, yield to your lust. And the Apostle Paul wants to make it clear to the Ephesians, no, if you're saved, you are to walk in newness of life. That's what Romans 6 says. And so then it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Look down to verse 5. For this ye know, 
that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What's he say in verse 6? Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Verse 7, be not ye therefore partakers with them. I believe what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, John articulates in 1 John chapter 3. There is a distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil, the children of obedience and the children of disobedience, children of darkness and children of light. So don't let anybody fool you and think that it's okay for you because you're a child of God to still go back and live like a child of the devil. Meaning there were people teaching them to do. He said, let no man deceive you. Got a question. Do we have anybody teaching today that because we're saved by grace, there are certain things that you can do that God said not to do, but you're saved by grace. It's okay. If you're sleeping around, you're drinking around, you're running around. Well, that God may not want you that, but friend, you're under grace. Let no man deceive you. That is not God's will for our life. So we need to be compassionate. God is compassionate. That's why He sent His Son to die for our sins and save us from them. Yes. But there are those today, and you hear me say this often, it's probably the most popular, errant doctrine that is closest to a group of people like this and most dangerous to a group of people who have the fundamentals of the faith down pat is that because you're saved by grace, you can continually live in sin and God is really not bothered about that. There are people writing books against the teachings of Hebrews chapter 12. I read it with my own eyes. That God is so loving, He would never scourge one of His own. I read it. A man that claims to be a fundamental Christian. He's not. A doubtful Christian, a believer at all. He's a heretic, if not an apostate. A man that would teach that. And his answer for that is, well, it's a mistranslation of the text. Isn't that convenient? The whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And he takes his human logic to tear Hebrews chapter 12 apart to say, God wants you to be happy and blessed. You're his child. We call it radical grace. You call it radical liberty. You call it whatever you want. It's wicked is what it is. And John in 1 John chapter 3 was dealing with the same thing. People coming in and trying to drag God's people back into the old way of life to get them in trouble with their Heavenly Father, to confuse the issue. And so then, the same thing dealt with in Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, Romans 6. Now, if you would look at 1 Peter chapter 2, it would seem every apostle had to deal with the same thing. I'm so glad God preserved for us the Bible so that what they were dealing with back then, God knowing in His foreknowledge we'd still be dealing with today, we have wisdom from Him how to deal with it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. He says in verse 15, For so is the will of God that with well-doing he may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Then if you would, to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19. And Peter gets more pointed here about false teachers who were falsely teaching about liberty and, and freedom and so forth. Here he's referring to the apostates of his day. And it's interesting to me, the apostates of Peter's day teach the same thing that the apostates of our day teach. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with the tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. 
For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from those who live in error. While they promised them, what did they promise them? Liberty. They themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, the same as he brought into bondage. One of those popular messages in our day is, you know what? These people who teach separation and holiness for Christian living are nothing but a bunch of legalists. You come over to us and we will free you from the bondage of standards of righteousness and holiness. You don't have to worry about how you talk or dress. Nobody will judge you. You come over here and we'll just love on you. And you'll be free. Be not deceived. They promise liberty. These guys that promise this, by and by comes out, they're immoral, they're ungodly, they're promising liberty, and they themselves are still serving sin. Now listen, if you're saved tonight, you are freed from sin in the sense you are no longer, sin is no longer your master. But if Satan can mess with your mind and tell you that you are, I believe there's a pivotal point in the life of the Christian where he is struggling and wrestling with his flesh. He wants to do right or she wants to do right because they're saved. But failing time and time again, they begin to doubt their salvation. If I'm saved, why can't I consistently do right? There comes a point you need to learn. You cannot. It is God in you, enabling you. But there's a dangerous point when you're at that point as a Christian where you have become aware, I am incapable of carrying out what I know I ought to do. It's Romans chapter 7. I'm incapable of doing what I know I ought to do even though I want to do it. And along comes some promiser of liberty and says, God was never concerned about that in the first place. Instead of you learning to live a life dependent on the Spirit of God to enable you to live in victory, all of a sudden there's a a better option. You can be lazy as a Christian. You can live and let live because you're under grace. And what happens is in a few years you won't even know if you're saved. Because if you're saved, you know you ought to live for God. And there is a recipe in the Bible to living for God. It's called faith, not Self-confidence, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as much faith in Him to empower me to live holy as I have in Him to save my soul from hell. But there is an option that Satan will offer you to say, this idea that you're supposed to live a separated life is not even of God. That's not, but it is, but there are naysayers and apostates and false teachers today trying to deceive God's people into living lives of licentiousness, going back into the old life, And I believe that's exactly what John was dealing with in 1 John chapter 3. So let's go back there. I believe what he's doing here is I understand and can see the Scripture. He is making the case for what he says in 1 John 3, 3. What he says in 1 John 3, 3 is this. Every man that hath this hope. What hope? The hope of the return of Christ, the hope of a resurrected body, the hope of glorification, the hope that one day we won't be dealing with sin anymore because we'll be like him. We'll be with him. Every man that hath this hope in him does what? What is the de- what is the demonstration of our hope? Purifieth himself even as he is pure. The 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 evidence of the hope of an e- of eternal life in me is the purification of my life. That's what the Bible says. That's consistent throughout the scriptures. And so then uh, John I believe goes on in verses 4 through 10 to make the case for what he says in verse 3. And every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So what I believe he's going to give us is three reasons. We're going, to, we're going to outline his three reasons that the child of God should purify himself. 
And purification here dealing with the putting away of sin, putting off the old man. That's how Paul said it, putting off the old man. And what he's going to do is sin is kind of the emphasis, sin versus righteousness in verses 4 through 10. He's going to, we're going to point out three things about sin that are, are reasons why the child of God should separate from sin in his life uh, based on the Word of God. First of all, and this will be a review from last week, the child of God should purify himself even as he is pure, pure because number one, sin is incompliant with the principles of righteousness. By that I'm referring to the law. Sin is in violation of God's law. We said last week, not just the Mosaic law, I believe that's the law Paul talks about in Romans 7, that in his mind he was subject to the law of God, the will of God revealed through the word of God, and it includes that Old Testament law. You remember Paul said, in First Timothy chapter 1, I believe it is, the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Law, I read today, uh, the writer John Phillips said, though we are not under the system of the law, we are still accountable to the standard of the law. That's a profound statement. I want you to think about that because when you deal with these people today who abuse the law and abuse grace, you need to understand God's purpose for the law. Galatians chapter 3 teaches us that the purpose of the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Would you say anyone or anything that brings you to Christ is good? There are those today that act like the law is bad. The law is not bad. It just can't save you. But it can take you to the one who can save you. you know, is John the Baptist bad or good? He was good. Why? Because he led people to the one who could save them. And while John couldn't save them, he knew who could. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So the number one reason the child of God should purify himself, put away sin, is because sin is incompliant with the principles of righteousness. Listen, we have been reconciled to God. And what I'm trying to say in that point is sin ultimately is rebellion. It's, it's, sin is the transgression of the law, meaning I know God said don't, but I will anyway. I know God said do, but I'm not going to. It's disobedience to God. We said four things last week in defining sin. Sin is disobedience to God's law, whether willful or ignorantly. Disobedience to God's law is sin. That's what 1 John 3, 4 says. Number two, and we won't look at all these verses because we did last week. Sin is deliberation of foolishness. Proverbs 24, verse 9 says the thought of foolishness is Sin, that word thought there means to, to, um, devise in one's mind, to make plans to, to carry out. Do you realize if you have not, somebody sits around and says, you know what, they're sitting plotting a murder in their mind. Have they already sinned? That's yeah, the thought of foolishness. Deliberating folly. The child sits around and says, hmm, I'm not disobeying my parents yet, but if I could figure out how to do it and get by with it, I would. You've already sinned. The deliberation of sin, the deliberation of folly of sin. So these things are all in compl- they're out of compliance with God's righteousness. And so sin is disobedience to God's law, transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. It's deliberation of foolishness. The thought of foolishness is sin. It is disbelief of God's word. The Bible says what in Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, and it is disregard for what is right. Therefore, to know, him that knoweth do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Why shouldn't the child of God sin? Because sin is antichrist. It's against God. Let me ask you this. Jesus came to destroy the law or to fulfill it? 
then anything that is in violation to God's law is in, against Christ. He said in Matthew 5, 7, 5, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. Meaning, God's principles of righteousness are perfect. His standard of righteousness is perfect. And again, while we're not under that system, we can look back at that system, even if we're talking about the Mosaic law, and say, God's law for His people is perfect. What He told them to do, anything God says is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. We are to never find fault with what God wants. If God says, this is what I want, then that's right. And so we shouldn't sin because we're not a... You're saved tonight. You're not a rebel against God anymore. You're reconciled to God. Then remember, rebellion is old nature, not new one. And so then, the first reason the child of God should purify himself as he is pure is because sin, impurity, sin is incompliant with the principles of righteousness. And because it is, then sin is incompatible, number two, with the person of righteousness. So he says in verse 4, whosoever, in, in context of verse 3, every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Verse 4, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So that's the first reason. Sin is incompliant with the principles of, of righteousness. But then he says in verse 5, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Verse 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Look at verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. There we find the author of sin. That's, of course, Satan. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. He says, let's get real clear. The law puts forward the righteousness of God. The Lord Jesus came. So sin is the transgression of the law, the breaking of the law. Christ came to redeem them that were under the law. He became a curse for us, right? So that he might take away our sin. In him is no sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil, not promote them not enable them. Christ came to deal with sin. So if my understanding of Christ is God's not, uh, He's not worried or concerned about sin in my life, I'm wrong. The person of Jesus Christ is all about undoing what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Satan accomplished this in the Garden of Eden. He got man to rebel against God. Jesus came to get us to obey God. Satan got us to, to call God a liar. Jesus came to get us to trust Him. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Find a couple of things here where sin is incompatible with the person of Jesus Christ. It's incompatible with his purpose. He came to take away our sin. Well, if I'm continuing in sin, that doesn't line up with what he came to do. If he's my Savior and I'm in him and his word is in me, then how am I going to be sinning? See, if I'm abiding in Christ, I'm not sinning. It's like saying, you know what? I'm abiding in the lake, but I'm staying dry. No. No, if you're in the lake, you jump into water, you're going to be wet. You're in Christ, you're not going to sin. You're going to do what's right if you're abiding in Him. And so, uh, very simply, it is incompatible with His purpose. His purpose, number one, to take away our sins through forgiveness. He takes away our sins in the sight of God. That's our salvation. I read this quote as well today. He was talking about, uh, He that sinneth hath not seen Him nor known Him. And the writer said, a glimpse at Christ brings salvation. Gazing at Christ brings sanctification. Think on that one for a minute. 
Look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What they say about the serpent? Look and live. But you know what? You look to Christ and He saved you. You continue to keep your eyes on Him, He'll sanctify you. You'll not continue in sin by abiding in Christ. You'll separate from it. And you'll separate it from you. Any defensiveness of sin is not of God. It's the opposite of repentance. And if we're saved, we have a repentant heart. So Christ's purpose was to take away our sins, His purity. It's not only inconsistent with His purpose to take away our sins. And then verse 8 says His purpose was to destroy the works of the devil. Got a question. This is just so simple. Who is trying to get you into sin, Jesus or the devil? Who's trying to get you out of it? Who's more powerful? So the only way the devil can get us into sin is if we don't trust Christ like we're supposed to, either as Savior or as Sanctifier. And so then the devil is the author of sin, and Jesus came to destroy his works. Let's get this clear. Jesus Christ is neither ever, he is never either the author or promoter or defender of sin. He came to put it away. He came to put it away in the sight of God, and he came to cleanse our lives of it. And so that we're prepared to spend eternity with him. And so his purpose is to take away our sins. And it's inconsistent, not only incompatible with his purpose, but with his purity. The Bible says, verse 5 again, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now, you think about this. Let's say you take the most honest person you know. Meaning, you know they are capable of lying, but you've never known that in their life. Right? And someone says, you know what? They lie to you and they say they're dear friends with this person you know that is, a, that is so truthful and is, has a conviction about being truthful. And you say, uh, are you friends with so-and-so? They say, oh, yes, oh, yes, they're my hero. I want to be just like them. And here's this person you know, and they are so truthful and so honest. And here's this person that say they are dearest friends with them, and they're the worst liar you've ever met. Would that create confusion in your mind? Amos 3.3, 3, can two walk together except they be? How is that man that's such dear friends with him a liar? You know what I would think? Well, he is a liar. He must not be friends with him. That's what I would think. I come over here to the truth teller and say, is that guy your friend? He says, hardly so. We can't get along. There are those who say, oh, I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm a friend of Jesus. I love what put him on the cross. I love the very things that put nails in his hands and thorns on his head. I love the very thing that he came to take away. I am constantly working to keep what he is constantly, what he came to take away. That makes sense, does it? When we defend sin in our life, what we're saying is, I want to keep what he wants rid of. That doesn't, that does not line up. That's what these naysayers, these deceivers were coming saying. You can keep your sin. John says, no, he came to take it away. He came to purify. And so in my life, you say, well, I think the Lord, you know, I know this is in my life and I think he's okay. If it's sin, he is, he wants it out. He wants it gone. Because in him is no sin. And so when I abide in him, he's going to clean me up, not dirty me up. And so I think that's pretty simple. In him is no sin. Sin is incompliant with the principles of righteousness. Therefore, sin is incompatible with the person of righteousness, Christ who is our righteousness, the Bible says. When he shall appear, we'll see him and be like him. Number three, sin is not that we, we, we should purify ourselves not because sin is incompliant 
with principles of righteousness. It's incompatible with the person of righteousness, but it is inconsistent then with our position of righteousness. Because Christ is righteous and we're in Him, then sin is inconsistent with that position. It doesn't line up. It's not, it is not congruent, if you would. It doesn't match or fit in the life of the child of God. That's why when you're saved and you sin, it troubles you. It doesn't fit. It doesn't match. It's not who you are anymore. Uh, that's who you were, but it's not who you are. You ever hear testimonies of somebody say, you know, I was lost, I was unsaved, I was living like the devil, and then I received the Lord as my Savior, and then I went to sit down to do what I have done for the last 15 years. And the moment I did it, I thought, oh, what changed? They got a new nature. And you know what? As you continue to walk with the Lord, there'll be more things like that. You say, why does this why does this thought process bother me? Because it's old, not new. It is not sin is not consistent with our new nature in Jesus Christ. So look, let's look at a few more verses uh, about our position. All right. So sin is incompliant with the principles of righteousness, incompatible with the person of righteousness, but it's inconsistent with our position of righteousness. Notice number one, John points out in chapter three, our position is definite or permanent. Look at verse one and two again. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, look what it says, now are we the sons of God. That's pretty definite, isn't it? He doesn't say we're becoming the sons of God. We are evolving into children of God. He doesn't say we're all the sons of God, but those who have been born again. Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All I want to point out here is our position of righteousness in Christ is definite. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I don't know of anything more important for a new Christian than getting settled. My relationship to God is forever changed. I am eternally changed. I'm in Christ and that will never change. There are a number of things that happened the moment we got saved. If you read Romans chapter 6, the moment you got saved, you ceased to be a servant of sin and you became a servant of righteousness. That practical truth needs to be implemented and reckoned into your life. But the fact is, the moment you by faith called out on the Lord Jesus to save you, what did you call out on Him to save you from? I want him to save me from sin because I knew my sin was taking me to hell. Therefore, in my mind, sin was my enemy. I couldn't have articulated that, but in my mind, in my heart, sin was not my friend. Christ was. And if I'd call on him, he would save me from what sin was doing to me and what it would do to me in eternity. And so the moment I cried out to him, he did a number of things for me by making me his child that were their actual truth. I, I am no, the truth is, I am not bound to serve sin. I am freed. And the conflict, I dealt with this last Thursday night, the conflict in our mind is, but my life doesn't say that. That's because you need to believe the truth. If you're born again, you need to believe what God said. He released you from the power of sin. That's just a fact. And as long as Satan can get you to doubt that fact, you'll continue in sin. 
But the moment you say, that's what God did for me. I believe, Lord, I take it your word. I called on you to save me. You said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, that does it. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he will be a new creature. That what it says? Words are important, aren't they? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know what? You know why I called on Christ to save me? Because the Bible said, and those who preach the Bible said, that's what I need to do to be saved. Meaning, when I got saved, it was obedience to God by faith. My obedience didn't save me. His did. But my fact is, salvation is obedience. You are, you are submitting to the truth of the gospel that you cannot save yourself. Your sins have condemned you, but Jesus Christ can rescue you. And you submit and say, God, I believe you. And therefore, Lord Jesus, save me. That is new life, and that is the first of a life of obedience to God. We don't have time to go into an entire lesson. You read Romans chapter 6 of all that God did when He saved you. He released us from sin, made us new creatures. We've been buried with Him in death and raised to walk in newness of life. That's not theory, it is fact. And therefore, those facts need to be appropriate in our life. But the point is, our position as sons of God, once we've put our trust in Christ, it's definite. Uh, 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that ye may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So our position is definite. Number two, our position in Christ as sons of God is to be demonstrated. And it is demonstrated. Look at verse 6. It says, Whosoever abideth in him. Now that's our position, is it not? Those two words, in him. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Someone says, well, then I've never seen him or known him. I don't believe the idea is that if you commit a sin, the idea would be you can't sin because you saw him. How many of you got light from God and that led you to sin? A clearer glimpse of Christ led you into more sin. No. If you see him and you know him, it's the opposite. Seeing Him and knowing Him is purification. That's what He says. We know we'll be like Him for we will see Him as He is. You say, what's the key to holiness in my life? Getting a clearer vision of Jesus Christ. The clearer I see Him, the more I become like Him. And the more I become like Him, the less I'm I'm going to sin. And so the idea would be, uh, our position is demonstrated by righteousness. See, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Did Jesus come and live a sinlessly perfect life? He did. And the world said, he must be the son of God. Look how perfect he is. Or what did the world do? They found fault with everything he did because he was quite the opposite of them. And for the same reason, the world doesn't recognize us as the sons of God. But you know what? We have the ability to recognize that position and God uses that in our lives. So again, the demonstration of our position is this. Verse 6, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Verse 7, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Got a question. I asked a man in the jail this other night, and I think he looked at me cross-eyed at first. I said, do, are, are dogs dogs because they bark, or do they bark because they're dogs? You know that old question. And he didn't know where I was coming from. Ooh. I guess they bark because they're dogs. That's right. Are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? You know why we sin? 
Because we're sinful. Do you know why people do righteousness? Because they're righteous. We can flip that coin. You know why a dog barks? Because he's a dog. Do you know why a sheep hates, hates mud? Because he's a sheep. You can throw a sheep in the mud, but he will not wallow in it like a pig. As a Christian, you can fall in the mud, but you want cleaned up. Why? Because you're righteous. Our righteousness is not a hypothetical, it's a fact. If I am in Christ, I am, God says, my faith in Jesus Christ is what makes me righteous. That's simple. Plus nothing, minus nothing. But how is our righteous character revealed? Through righteousness. Our position of righteousness is revealed through righteous deeds. It doesn't make us righteous. He says, whosoever doeth righteousness is righteous. Why do people do righteous things? Because they're righteous. They're in Christ. I, you know, I, I say this and be careful, but some go, go around and say, oh, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a wicked sinner. If you're saved, you're a saint. Paul didn't say unto the sinners at Corinth. He said unto the saints. That's what I would have called them. How could Paul refer to Corinthian believers as saints? Because they had no conflict in their church, that's why. No carnality in their church. No, they were in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you know how Paul reasoned with the Corinthians? He didn't say, well, because of your carnality, you're not Christians. He said, no, because you're Christians, put away your carnality. Because you're in Christ, let your conduct show it. John says, whosoever doeth righteousness, the reason he does righteousness is because he's righteous. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is ours upon salvation. It is demonstrated through what we do. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and who? Glorify who? Your Father which is in heaven. Meaning good works can only come from the enabling power of God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, when we do good, we know who gets the glory. We can't produce any good. So when good works come from us, God gets the glory. So our position is definite. Now are we the sons of God. Our position is demonstrated. Whosoever doeth righteousness, he that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. And then our position is distinct. Look at verses 8 through 10. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Look at verse 10. In this, the children of God are manifest, made known, and the children of the devil. There's a distinction. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Uh, I heard it explained this way, that there is a general tendency to someone's life I was reading, say the Nile River runs from the south to the north, but there's a period where it actually runs south for just a little ways and then back north. Meaning there is a period where it is not in line with its true direction or seemingly, but by and by it continually runs north, even though it turns south for a short period and then back north. The fact of the matter is, if you're saved, God is working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And he'll, he'll, I believe this, God will get that one way or another, either by chastening or removal. He will chasten us and even remove us if he must, we may not condemn with this world. All I would say is this, John again is dealing with absolutes. How many of us could argue this? He that committeth sin is of the devil. <laughs> and he that doeth righteousness is of God. 
what God's saying? You know what distinguishes the saved from the lost as far as what we can see? Righteousness versus sin. This is why when someone who says, I believe in Christ, lives in sin, what does it create in the mind of those that listen to that? Confusion. Because we know that the person that commits sin is of the devil. You know what? John's going to continue to deal with this. You want assurance of your salvation? Look, sin in your life as a child of God cannot rob you of your salvation, but it can rob you of the assurance of it because of this very fact. John's establishing some facts. Spirit of God. He that commits sin is of the devil, meaning the devil is the author of sin. How many of us know you have two natures at work in you? The first sinful nature. (laughs) Who's the father of that? The devil. Have you been relieved of that nature? Is it gone? Wasn't gone for Paul. Paul didn't say, I know that in me that was in my flesh dwelt no good thing. He said, I know then that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth, present tense, no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. I believe this. Our flesh corrupted by sin, not of God. Our fleshly nature is not of God. But our new nature is of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe it's verse 23, says being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. What does the verse say? It says, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his what remaineth in him? His seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Your new man, I believe this with all my heart, there is, if you're born again, there is a nature in you that is incapable of sinning. How can we say that? Because that nature is born of God, and whatsoever is born of God sinneth not. So when there's sin, we can know, I'm not listening to God. I'm, my new man's not working, my old one is. The one that's of the devil, that's what's working when I sin. Why is it needful to say? As we said last week, some people sin and pawn it off on the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. There are those today who say, and be careful. I understand God can use what is intended for evil unto good. But I hear preachers today, especially Calvinists, saying, the sovereign God knows even how to use sin for good. He'll even, he'll even use your, your sinful failures, your, your brokenness. What they mean is your continual living in sin for his glory. That is Gnostic teaching that's teaching us glorify God through continuing in sin. John says, no, that's not the way it is. You're a new creature. You have a new position. Righteousness proceeds from us because we've been made righteous. And what distinguishes the children of God from the children of the devil is righteousness versus sin. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Meaning the crowning mark of God's children, what makes us peculiar from the world is holiness. Let's close with Titus 2, chapter 11. Uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I think of it this way. James says, Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. A profession of faith without the demonstration of faith results in confusion. You say someone that doesn't demonstrate it is lost. That's not what it says. not what the Bible says. But I do believe this. When, what, when our position is not demonstrated and our lives are conformed to the world, it creates confusion and discredit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says the gospel is ineffective in changing lives when we don't live in accordance with our high and holy calling. There's no excuse that a child of God should continue on living in sin. We've been set free. We have the Spirit of God within us. We've been given prayer. We've been given God's Word. We've been given God's people. And so, therefore, let us demonstrate our saved position by lives of obedience and righteousness. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness 
and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. Is this not 1 John 3 written in just a different order? He that hath, and every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself. You know what God's saying? We're looking for that blessed hope. So, let's deny ungodliness. That's purification. Let's deny worldly lust. Put away sin. Why? Because our hope is not here and not in the next pleasurable moment, but in eternity with our Savior. So, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, let us, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and do what? Purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. What makes us peculiar is godliness, being zealous of good works, denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, we live soberly, righteously, and godly. You know what? Think about how opposite the message of our day is. In the name of evangelism, we are told what we need to do is we need to be relevant to a sinful world. And to be relevant to a sinful world, you have to relate to them. And to relate with them, you have to join them in some of their sinful practices and places. That is a very subtle, devilish doctrine that says the way you win the lost is being like them. God says, no, the way you serve me is being distinct. You do right because you're righteous. Amen? And that gives a clear, clear picture of the grace of God in our lives.